Welcome to WMUA News. My name is Jesse Kowadkin. For clarity and honesty's sake, this piece was made as my final project for a class I took last semester. Although, as an aside, it was a communications class called Folklore and Alcohol, and it was fantastic. Stephen Oberston Giancarello was the professor, and everything he said was fascinating. I would highly recommend taking the class. Uh, I digress. Alcohol, culture, and mythology have been intertwined throughout the course of human history. Join myself and some wonderful guests as we take a trip around the world and visit three different cultures and their alcohols, and how those cultures and alcohols uh, intertwine and are still relevant and important to this day. Our alcoholic adventure begins at UMass Hillel. Uh, this is Rafi Light. He is a rabbi there, and he helped explain to me why wine seems to be the only alcohol associated with the Jewish people, as well as other cultural uh, significances that alcohol has and wine has uh, to their customs and their traditions. Wine is important to Jewish culture because it's different than anything else in, um, in terms of food and beverage. Um, the process to, to make wine um, is much longer and more involved than the process to make other beverages. Um, that's one thing. But another reason is because um, it actually makes a perceptible difference when, um, when drank, when drunken. So like if I, I, I can tell when I'm dehydrated, I can tell when I'm hydrated, but the thing with wine is that it changes our perception of self. And um, the Talmud talks about how so that when wine comes in, secret comes out, um, our inhibitions are, and defense is lowered um, when we have wine. And I think that one of the main tenets of belief in Judaism is that it's not through asceticism that we reach spiritual life. It's not through denying material and physical needs, um, but it's rather, it's utilize that, utilizing them for their most holy potential. The greatest example of that in terms of food and beverage would be wine because it has potential for such greatness and such, su such a terrible usage too. And so I think part of what, what the reason is behind Shabbat and, uh, you know, we make a Jewish ceremony is made with a blessing over wine and um, like a Jewish wedding ceremony is made with a blessing over wine and holidays and Purim is an entire holiday based on drinking wine. That's because it changes our perception. Um, and that's and that's a special thing. It's, it's a special type of food or drink, and therefore we're going to utilize that in our spiritual work too. There's a machloket. There's a dispute in the Talmud about what the forbidden fruit actually was. So we think of it as like common. Most commonly, we think of it as an apple, but there are four different options. One of those options being was it wasn't actually a tree with fruit it was a vine with fruit and that vine had grapes on it and the forbidden thing was actually the wine and the reason as to why it was forbidden was because it was so potentially holy it was so special that um it was this it was wine that was going to be saved for all of history from the beginning of creation until the redemption and that's how potentially um powerful it could be but that's that's one of the origins where we see that it's a part of the forbidden the, the story of um adam and eve and and you know when they drink they realize they're naked and like um, it gives them this greater uh, sense of sight um, on different levels. I remember reading that Noah was actually supposed to be the first Jew, but he got too drunk on wine, and so God decided that he was no longer fit. What did Noah do 
Um, that obviously shows the flip side of the coin, where one on the one hand is this holy thing that you should uh, imbibe, and the other one hand, it, it very much uh, can be a danger to yourself. When he came out of the ark after the flood, the first thing he did was they, they plant, he planted a tree, and then he drank and he um, he got drunk and too drunk to the point that it was it was embarrassing and it was disrespectful to himself and his family. And that's one that's one of the extreme potentials of of what drinking can do. And so you're right, yeah, he wasn't chosen for that reason. It's interesting too because you go from one extreme where Noah gets super 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 drunk and he's not chosen to be the forefather of the Jewish people. And on the other hand, you look at a Jewish holiday and festival like Purim, where you're supposed to get drunk. A lot of literature says you're supposed to get, you're supposed to get drunk in a very communal uh, setting, and maybe it is a little embarrassing. And I was just wondering you know, why that is and, and why perhaps it's okay, especially with wine, to get drunk on Purim. First, we, we go from one to the other based on starting from individual and collective, like it's a positive thing to, to drink on Purim. And that's making sure we're doing it with a community as opposed to drinking alone. So that's one difference. And then, you know, in terms of Jewish history, the, the reason as to why we drink on Purim is because the miracles that are in the story of Purim, of Mordechai and Esther and the saving of Jewish lives, at each point in that story, there were many different instances where wine was involved. And so wine acted as a, kind of like a catalyst for the saving of their lives, or at least a, it, wine itself was a character within the story. And so that, that's part of the, the reason why we drink on Purim. Um, but your, your question is, is right on because there are many Jewish observant law uh, authorities that rule that getting that drunk on Purim is forbidden. Um, and there are some opinions that it means you should just drink a little bit and take a nap, and then you won't know the difference between good and evil. Or it means you should get so drunk that you like can't even think and everything is up in the air, and that's, that's the other extreme. And then, um, you know, even on Passover, like we have four cups of wine we're supposed to drink, and, and each cup really is, we even pour a cup that we don't drink for Elijah the prophet, right? It's like a funny on top of it all, on top of the drinking, we even pour one we're not going to drink. And they're supposed to deeper and deeper get us to this place of, li of liberating the collective in the story of Passover, but also liberating one's own mental slaveries. And wine is supposed to allow that done in the right context. Um, and I think the, the, the wrong context was that using it as a, not as a crutch necessarily, but as not finding the word, but for Noah, using it in the way he did in that context wasn't good for him. And in terms of Purim and other holidays, you know, drinking with friends or family around a table and eating at the same time and doing it for the right intentions, um, these are all part of contributing to a context that makes it right to drink like that. I think like in many cultures, the idea of toasting and cheers and when in Jewish culture, we say l'chaim, like to life. A person can say l'chaim to themselves, but it's all the more meaningful and impactful when they say it to someone else. So like to your life, and I'm glad you're alive. Um, and let's celebrate your life and my life together with this like in Jewish life. Um, there's this great quote by uh, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Horowitz of Rupshitz, who was a Rebbe in um, Galicia in Poland. He lived from 1760 to 1827, and he said that it's, it's found in a midrash, a source um, of rabbinic Judaism, 
that when a person drinks a lachayim, he takes like a shot of alcohol or something, the Holy One, blessed be he, God, forgives all of their misdeeds. And that's like the hard, most hardcore endorsement of healthy drinking a person could have. Like, so, you know, it's the best. Thank you to Rafi and UMass Hillel. We'll turn our attention now to the Philippines and the Igoro people, the indigenous people uh, to the Philippines. This is Shannon McCollingay. She is a journalism and English double major here at UMass Amherst. Where does your indigenous heritage come from? So, um, I'm from the Philippines, but I identify as an indigenous person from there. And I'm located up in the mountains, like the northern part of the Philippines. So, like, a lot of people associate the Philippines with the sea or how warm it is and just a lot of ocean activities. But where I'm from, like, you barely see any bodies of water and you're... Like, there are lakes, but it's cold, not as warm as when you're down lower in the Philippines. And it's a very different culture and lifestyle lifestyle compared to um, below the mountain. So I call myself Igorot. Um, the Igorots occupy uh, the Cordillera region in the, uh, like, in the topmost northern island of the Philippines called Luzon within the term Igorot which was a term given to us by the Spaniards which means people of the mountains but yeah within that uh, word there are different tribes different ways that we identify with it's just that Igorot is like an umbrella term. What were some of the biggest and most important alcoholic beverages in Igoro culture? The biggest alcohol beverage. I feel like I don't give it enough respect by identifying it as an alcohol beverage, but I, I get the term. Um, uh, however, our most popular drink that we go to is called uh, tapoy, and it's this fermented glutinous red rice drink it's a very special meaning to it because there's a certain process it has to go to and within that process you have to put a lot of intentions behind it and consideration for the people around our area and who we're going to serve that to it's not a drink meant to just be drank by ourselves it's a drink um, to gather everybody and to share stories and it's very meaningful to all of us. And it's a way we show gratitude towards the people we live around. What are some of like the, um, the special ceremonies or festivals or celebrations that uh, you would drink it at? So one of like the most known um, events or ceremony that you can find it is during weddings. Our weddings, they're, they're big, needless to say. As in, if somebody in the village is having a wedding, that means everybody is attending it. There's, it's a huge one. So the bride and the groom, they're set in this certain spot. In that spot, 
everyone in the family goes to greet them. So there's this long line that's endless of people giving or serving them gifts, right? But then the bride and the groom are serving their guests the bapoy. And it's, again, a way to show our gratitude and kind of like, thank you for raising me. Thank you for being a part of my life and uh, guiding me. What does tapoy taste like? It's, it's very sweet. So like the process of making it. So first you have to cook the rice, right? And then you have to let it cool. And then once it's cooled, you add like this special kind of yeast called bubod. And then you place it in this clay pot, a really big clay pot um, where it creates a natural fermentation. And then you leave it in a dark place. Usually you leave it in a dark place for two to three months or more, but sometimes you can do one, like leave it for two weeks if you want to um, drink it right away or you want to serve it right away, but it's not going to be as sweet and it might be bitter, bitter because the longer you let it sit, the sweeter it tastes and the more like alcoholy or <laughs> it becomes. And one thing I like about it is that it doesn't cause hangovers no matter how much you drink it because it doesn't contain like the sulfites, which is like a preservative mixed with wine. Um, so I like to say it's our tapo is very natural and organic. But yeah, when I drink it, it's really sweet. And that's my favorite uh, taste. Like I hate, I hate it when it's bitter. Um, it's it's not tasty one bit but like the older men and sometimes the older women in our family in our family line they prefer that taste oh that's (laughs) you can drink it all and not get a hangover (laughs) is it very is it like is it really strong the scientific way of determining it is around 50 14 percent or more so who actually makes the tepoy Usually the people who make rice wine, which is the English translation, are elders because they're seen as very wise. And when you create, when you have somebody who's very wise, like it's assumed that they know a lot and they've built this culture and they've built a um, understanding and know how to appreciate the wine for what it is. And we have this like uh, also another ceremony where the older people in our village come together and they create the rice wine like side by side. And that's also a place where the kids and the parents also gather and they're dancing and doing wood carvings too. Um, And uh, basically like everybody around the village kind of has a part in making this even though they're not physically touching it and doing the work but they're around it and they're um appreciating the area it's being made in is there you know is it like oh you gotta turn 14 and then you can drink it or is it three-year-olds drink it 80-year-olds drink it oh i started drinking it when i was like four (laughs) so it really doesn't matter are there any stories you know about myths that the igoro have about tapoy these spirits are giving us offerings such as allowing us to grow rice 
And because that area, the area we live in, our rice terraces are very popular. There's even pictures of it like on Google where people like to use them for their means. And that was given to us by our spirit or like spirits, ghosts, they're here in the physical world but you can't see them. And there's a story why we can't see them. They planted the seeds for us and they've sent us people who taught our, uh, they've or they've sent like other spirits too, to teach us how to grow it, how to properly grow it and to take care of the rice field and show us how we can make more. And so from the rice that we grew the way we plucked the rice too is very intent uh, is filled with a lot of intention like you have to do things with intention that's like something that's very stressed like you can't just do it off of muscle memory or mindlessly like you have to put good intentions to it uh, appreciate what it gives and that's kind of the purpose of what the spirits want us to learn and from there um, they guided us in creating this beverage, this um, drink of, or a drink that with the challenges and the um, obstacles they put us through, we've come to work over them and uh, come together to work over them because like, um, I forgot to mention this, but not one person does this like everybody is in the fields doing it like everybody has a hand in it and so like the beverage does is like um a symbolism of everybody's hard work and that um not one person is responsible for taking care of people or offering something it's everybody and it's a lesson to uh, thank the people around us and uh, be grateful for the village we or the environment we've grown up with and how the environment or how generations will come and continue to be passed down and the village will grow and everybody will have a hand in creating something that is um something that's yeah something that's like unified which is why we drink this rice wine in only in events or occasions where everybody is together like you don't drink it by yourself it's not something that you should drink with intention of getting drunk it's more like appreciating the taste appreciating how we are appreciating our spirits for giving or giving us the seeds to make these rice terraces that also feed us and um is part of our life. How is that different for you living here in the US and not in the Philippines? For us indigenous people who've come and immigrated here, uh, producing rice wine is kind of rare, not like uncommon because it's more of a traditional drink. And over here, we can't really practice our traditions that easily or as frequent because we've come to learn how to assimilate here. and generation after generation is are like they're more concentrated on how to live here in America than how it is back home so they're not really learning these like that process of the uh, rice wine and so over here it's kind of appreciated more because we don't have it a lot in our family parties 
uh, or gatherings it's not um something people go to now like they prefer uh, hard liquor <laughs> come up as opposed to uh, rice wine but it's still something that means a lot to us and even no matter how americanized i hate that term so much um no, but no matter how much the, uh, you are um or you've adapted a lot of american values like at your at our core we still know tapoy and we know what it represents Thank you, Shannon. We will end our alcoholic adventure in Brazil with somebody that listeners to WMUA News might know quite well. Rebecca Pereira herself is Brazilian and she helped me and hopefully you understand some of the cultures, myths and legends surrounding uh, Brazilian alcohol. I think it, it takes a quick Google search to find out that, you know, cachaça actually originated in Africa and not in Brazil, but the prevailing narrative is the slaves kind of toiling over a pot of, of cane sugar and then condensation and just you let that, you let that uh, simmer for way too long and that becomes a, a like strong drink and that's essentially the lore surrounding cachaça. If we're talking about the caipirinha which is considered the national drink for Brazil originated in Sao Paulo, the ingredient, the main ingredient, the main liqueur in a caipirinha is cachaça. Some lore says that it's from Cape Verde, kind of the islands off of the coast of Africa that were settled by the Portuguese before bringing slaves to Brazil. But the consensus seems to be that cachaça did not originate in Brazil as some lore might suggest, but it did, that it was imported from the islands off of the coast of Africa. Is that a topic for debate in Brazil? Is that just kind of something buried under the rug? No, I don't think so. Not from what I gather. I just think that because geographically Brazil is the convergence of like so many different cultures. Naturally, there's a lot of folklore and a lot of mysticism surrounding certain practices. You know, at the end of the year, everybody goes to the beach um, and you dress uh, according to a certain color, depending on what you want to attract into your life. You wear white for peace, I think, or yellow for money or red for love, different kinds. So that practice traces back to Yamanja, which is a a goddess um, from African mythology. I don't think I don't think the majority of the people who do that actually believe in the spiritual veracity of that. You know, like nobody's actually going out into the ocean being like, I'm gonna dress a certain way and the universe is actually gonna give me these things in the coming year. But it's just become so entrenched in the culture and like part of the tradition that everybody does it. So KP, is that would you drink that on special occasions? Can you drink it whenever? You, you drink it whenever. Every event that I've been to in Brazil has had caipirinha. It's pretty ubiquitous, I would say. But Do you know anything about um, how alcohol uh, was treated or um, how it affected people in, in mythology and folklore? 
Well, I do know that alcohol for a very long time was used for medicinal purposes in Brazil. That has something to do with the folklore surrounding the origins of, uh, of cachaça. When you consider that the slaves were charged with making, with, with, with dealing with medicinal um, kind of like the, the, so the slaves were charged with healing and curing their, their fellow slaves so they could continue to work. They wouldn't have been asked to specifically deal with any kind of fine wine or like, like the slaves were charged with kind of menial tasks and rehabilitating your body so that you can continue to work was imperative for them because if you're dispensable if you're useless you're dead because they were kind of laboring over the the lore is that they uh, a slave was laboring over a pot of simmering cane sugar and that that would have been used for medicinal purposes that would have that liqueur would have been used to treat to to remedy any kind of injury that was left to simmer for way too long and then uh, it was boiled twice over and they left uh, this like mythical slave leaves the leaves the the, the, the pan. So you, you just leave it on, on the on the stove for too long. You leave the pan on the stove for too long and it starts the, the condensation from the pan starts to turn into like a very, very heavy liquor. So like I wouldn't imagine that if they knew that it would that what the byproduct of that process would have been, that they would have been allowed to like interact with that kind of process. Like, I feel like if slave owners knew that something so like valuable would have come from that. Do people still make it like a homebrew type of thing? Yes. Two years ago, two and a half years ago at my cousin's wedding, we, th they served a lot of cachaça and I had my first caipirinha at her wedding. It was disgusting. There are different words for cachaça too. So for example, pinga is a term for cachaça that's used in country songs. So it's a genre of country called sertanejo and it's very folksy and they talk a lot about heartbreak and uh, drinking your feelings away. So pinga is, a ver is very common in that genre but it's essentially cachaça. Etymologically, pinga is a variant of the word pingah. So it's a verb. The verb pingah, which ends with an R, conjugated for he, she, it. So that origin story of the condensation kind of dripping down into the pan and becoming cachaça, pingah is the verb to drip. So that's where that word comes from. So this might be a stretch. In indigenous mythology, Pinga was a goddess of the hunt, fertility, and of medicine. So if we want to talk about the medicinal purposes of alcohol, tenuous, I know. So akasha seiru, anything with edu at the end is the personification of that object. So a casa shedu is somebody who indulges in cachaça frequently, is essentially synonymous to drunkard. It doesn't have a positive connotation. It's not festive or uh, kind of hedonistic. 
like it's 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 used to kind of deprecate the person it's derogatory yeah it's derogatory it's pejorative Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for listening. This is a little bit of a different piece, but I hope you enjoy just journeying around the world, perhaps learning something uh, that you wouldn't normally learn, I think, exploring different cultures in a lens that we don't normally talk about is fascinating. So hopefully this was just a nice bit of uh, easy listening, Uh, learn a thing or two on a Friday. Thank you for tuning in to WMUA News. My name is Jesse Kolodgin. Stay safe and take it easy.